again, happy Mother's Day to uh, all the moms and, and those who may not be moms biologically, but are moms nonetheless to, uh, to young people. Um, it's uh, truly a blessing to have uh, been raised by, um, to have you know, spoken with and learned lessons from all the women in my life. Um, and I would say that, uh, you know, it's all part of God's plan. Um, even from the very beginning, um, you know, God's intention for women um, in particular was to do the important work of, of raising and mentoring uh, the children. Um, and that's a, that's a beautiful thing. I, I'd say that, you know, for all intents and purposes, um, women are specially equipped for that job. Um, not to say that a man can't do it, but um, the, uh, the creation of, of Eve, even, even way back in the book of Genesis, was, in, was intentioned for that purpose. Um, and uh, all glory be to God that, um, again, that He has uh, allowed the women in our lives to, to be a part of our lives. The title of my lesson this morning is um, really in line with what Mark uh, mentioned in the scripture about, you know, the spirit is, is ready, but the, the, the flesh is weak. And that's, that's really the, the lesson that I'd like to impart today from, from God's word. Um, what does that mean and, and why is that? I know we've, you will probably undoubtedly... Um, some of the things that I, I will mention have, have already been spoken in a, in a lesson prior to. Um, but just taking stock of who and where you are in your life right now, um, I'm sure there have been many, many moments in, in, you know, in your life history, if you will, where you have had a good intention to do something, um, but for whatever reason, the body just did not allow you or afford you the brevity to do that for whatever reason. You know, that very well could have been that, you know, you intended to do X, Y, and Z, but um, you physically couldn't do it because, you know, you were sore or you're physically incapacitated. Um, maybe you had intended to, to read um, every night, but every time you, you know, open your Bible, you fall asleep. Um, maybe you have intended to, um, I don't know, uh, to give up maybe a certain type of food or uh, a certain, a certain something that, that maybe would um, improve your health and thus improve your ability to, to do more, um, but you failed in your dietary plan. Um, good intentions and having the ability to do those are, are two completely separate things. Um, to that point, I want to talk about um, what the scripture highlights to us about this fact and what we can do to, uh, to overcome. Um, if you have your Bibles this morning, uh, if you can, turn to the, the book of Psalms. <clears throat> Um, book of Psalms, the uh, 14th chapter. And um, 
you know, I, I don't want to wax philosophical, but, uh, you know, the, the fact that the spirit is ready, but the, the body is weak, is an excuse that many use in this world to support the fact that God cannot exist. Or that the, the, the idea of an almighty, um, perfect God um, is, is tomfoolery. I'm going to use those words. Um, they also will say that because of the fact that good intentions sometimes are usurped by physical limitations, um, whatever those may be, um, that it is impossible to be perfect. You have probably heard uh, many people say, some famous, some maybe not so much, that, um, you know, I am not perfect, and therefore it is impossible for you to judge me, um, because you're not perfect either. And because neither one of us can be perfect, then how can there be a heaven and a hell? How can there be absolute good and absolute evil? How can there be absolute righteousness and absolute unrighteousness? Says. As we've talked about a number of Sundays ago, there is a distinct line or um, drawn in the sand, um, you know, between good and evil, um, because it is what it is, and the scripture kind of highlights that. But those in the world will tell you that good and evil, um, in its absolute sense, is impossible because none of us can be perfect. Meaning, there has to be gray. You know, you know, somebody who um, maybe does evil with good intentions is all right. Or somebody who does evil with, um, or somebody who does good with evil intentions is bad. Uh, there's, there's always this little bit of gray. In Psalms, the 14th uh, chapter and verse number one, um, the psalmist writes here that, the fool had said in his heart, there is no God. And I, you know, that, that particular sentence there is extremely powerful because the fool, and it's interesting that it says fool, not the ignorant, right? Because a, a fool is someone by definition um, who knows to do, and I'm not saying by Webster's version of, of definition, but certainly the scriptural definition of the word fool is someone who knows the truth, um, but makes a conscious decision to reject it. And so the fool had said in his heart, there is no God. And the power of that statement is that it is okay, therefore, for me to be imperfect. It is okay for me to, you know, maybe... And as we get into the scripture reading um, later on, um, you know, where Peter, John, and James are in the Garden of Gethsemane with Christ in Mark, the 14th chapter, and he tells them to wait, right? Jesus, it's, it's late in the evening, right? Um, he tells them to, to watch, to, to wait and watch. I'm going to go over yonder and pray to, to God, but I, I really need your support, and to to be uh, to stay awake, and you know, if it's late at night, they've been up all day preparing for the Passover. They've had a good meal. Um, you know, 
what would you expect to happen? These guys are, you know, when they get sedentary and they get comfortable, they're going to fall asleep. And what the fool will say is, because there is no God, it's absolutely okay um, when we fall from, when we fail to meet our obligations as outlined in the scripture, because none of us can be perfect. And it says, uh, continuing on in verse number one of Psalms, the 14th chapter, it says, they are corrupt. These fools who have said in their heart that there is no God, they are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. And the, well, I'll hold that for a few moments. Let's, let's continue reading. It says in verse number two, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. And that is really the, um, the, the premise or the answer to the question of how can we in, in light of the fact that our spirits are always ready, you know, our, our hearts are intentioned on doing righteous things, uh, but the body is weak. How can we overcome? And it says that the Lord looked down upon the children of men to see if there were any that understood what he was laying out for them and were seeking God. And in verse number three, it says, they all are gone aside they are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Now it's interesting. There's no gray there, is there? I mean, it's, it's not like God looked down and said, well, you know, they're maybe not completely meeting the mark, but they're close enough. Um, yeah, they, they're doing it with good intentions, but they're humans, right? They're imperfect. They're fallible. You know, I'll give them a pass. I mean, they, they, they don't have the perspective that I have. You don't read any of those things here in the Scripture. All you read is that when God looked down, He saw that none of them um, were doing good. No, not one. All, and it's interesting that it says they... They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. Not just, you know, some were, you know, filthier than others. He lumped them all into one category. If they had sin on them, they were all filthy. And it says in verse number four, Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? <coughs> Who eat, up my, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and call not upon the Lord? There were they in great, there were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. And that's an important facet to understand that yes, there is a God. And number two, He is a part of the lineage of righteousness. So if you are, if you want to be with God and fellowship with God, if you consider yourself a child of God, then you also must be in the generation of righteous. And it says in, uh, in verse number four, this is a rhetorical question. Um, have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? 
No, they are not ignorant. They're foolish. Workers of iniquity know that they should not be doing that, or they should not be doing this, they should not be doing that. They know that it is wrong. We've talked about in a number of different Bible studies about the the concept of morality or morality versus righteousness. You know, there are good moral, let me rephrase that, there are moral people in this world, right? We are inherently, um, and I don't want to say all of us, but generally speaking, human beings are born or raised, you know, with this inherent moral code. Because we know that, you know, if I'm bad to you, in all likelihood, when I fall asleep, you'll take a, a, a knife and stab me in the back, right? It's in our best interest, rather, to be good and kind um, to most people. Because we know that we don't live in an island. We need mutual cooperation in order for each of us to survive. So it's in my best interest to be good and kind and moral to most people. Most people, not everybody, and that's where righteousness differs from morality, is righteousness requires you to be good to everybody. Even the person that socks you in the gut, even the person that is not able to advance your station in life, even the person who is a direct enemy of yours. That's the difference between morality and righteousness. Moral people are good to those who are good to them. Righteous people are good to those who are bad to them. And that's the difference, generally speaking, between the two. And so the workers of iniquity, they do have knowledge. Um, But they don't exercise it. They don't call upon the Lord, as it says in verse number four. So as I as I allude to that, I'll go back to the book of Genesis and and. I'll touch on something that we've all read before, you know, going back and looking at the fall of man. <clears throat> Excuse me. In uh, Genesis, the sixth chapter, um, it says that, uh, you know, God again looked down upon man um, and he says <clears throat> in verse number five that he saw the wickedness of man. Um, and that it was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And again, we see here that God didn't look down and say, well, they've got good intentions. Yes, I know that I did not create them, um, you know, well, I created I, I created them perfectly based on... Um, you know, what it says in, in the book of Genesis, he looked down upon all his creations and he was happy and pleased and he rested the seventh day, right? So God doesn't make mistakes, but he didn't look down upon mankind in Genesis the sixth chapter there and say, well, it was a good creation, but they're infallible. They can't be perfect. So I'm going to give them a pass. Um, he destroyed everybody, everybody except for seven souls. Noah and his family. And even after that, it says that, uh, um, you know, reading on, you know, the, the following chapters, right? Noah got drunk. Um, he was in, 
he was in his abode. He was, you know, not in a uh, honorable state. Um, and God, God had commanded that uh, the that observing thy father's nakedness was accursed, right? And what what happened that? Uh, um, and you can we can go back and, and take a look at it um, just to make sure I'm communicating it clearly. <clears throat> In uh, Genesis the ninth chapter, it says that uh, um, that Ham, right? Um, it says that Ham, the father of Canaan, in verse number twenty-two, saw the nakedness of his father. And, and told his two brethren without. And Shem and, and Jepheth, in verse 23, took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Now, in that particular instance, God could have given Ham a pass. How was Ham supposed to know that his father was naked in his tent? I mean, Noah was drunk. I mean... Is it Ham's fault that Noah was intoxicated to the extent that he was in his tent in a, in a, a dishonorable state? You know, man is imperfect. You know, the, the spirit is ready, but the body is weak. Um, you know, we, we can't obtain a level of perfection that God wants us to be. You know, if it, the scripture says that, you know, God is holy and we ought to be holy. God is perfect and we ought to be perfect. These, those are all scriptures here in the New Testament that, you know, are binding to us all. But no, Ham was cursed as a result. And you know that, that uh, um, you know, that uh, Ham, the, the father of Canaan, um, Canaan was separated from his, uh, from his fellow family members. Um, he had a mark on him such that those who would seek to kill him would not kill him. Um, it, it, was a, it was actually an act of mercy on God's part. Um, that those who observed the sign or, or the curse of Ham, if you will, uh, would not kill him um, because he was accursed. But my point being is that in every situation... In all of these certain circumstances where God certainly had an opportunity to give us a pass, He did not because God is a part of the generation of righteous. There is no gray area, there is no shadow, if you will, in the light. It's either all light or it's all dark. If you have your Bibles, um, let's turn to the New Testament Scripture and let's take a look at um, some things here. It says uh, um, in Philippians, the second chapter. Um, in Philippians, the second chapter, it says uh, in verse number three, that's where we'll start. It says, Let nothing be done with strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look, and then again, and this is Philippians, the second chapter. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which also 
which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And this is a powerful passage that um, we can see here about, you know, going back and looking at Psalms, the 14th chapter, you know, the fool that says there is no God. Well, there is a God and that God came to us in the form of Jesus the Christ as a man. It's very interesting to point out about what uh, uh, Paul is telling the church at Philippi here in the second chapter. He says, let nothing be done in strife and vainglory. And here's where the message becomes even more clear. Is you can't do something good with bad intentions. Because that is by definition with strife or vainglory. It says that if you are going to do something, it has to be done in lowliness of mind, not esteeming yourself um, over esteeming others. Consequently, in verse number four, it says that you should not be investing your time and energy on pursuing things that benefits you alone, but pursuing those things that benefit not just you, but others as well. And this was the mind that was also in Christ Jesus. Now, please mark your book here, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to come back to that and go back to um, Mark, the 14th chapter, our scripture reading here um, where Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, what was the mind of Christ? Well, the Garden of Gethsemane kind of, uh, gives us some insight as to what Christ was thinking before he was going to be betrayed. Almost immediately after he left the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, a, a troop of Jews which included Judas Iscariot, approaches him, right? And the Jews told Judas, when, you, when we come to Jesus, you need to give us a sign that this is the Jesus and not somebody else. And I got to thinking about why the Jews needed a sign, um, you know, a, a, an acknowledgement, if you will, that, you know, this was Jesus and not somebody else. And I think it may be because, um, maybe not because they all looked alike, but because I would imagine that some of the Jews that were there to arrest him really didn't know what Jesus looked like. I mean, there, there's some assumptions that certainly are made. The scripture doesn't highlight to us exactly the reason why, but they wanted to make sure they were arresting the right man it was very, very important that they get Jesus and not one of the other disciples. So um, I, I digress a little bit. But getting back to Mark, the 14th chapter, starting at uh, verse number 32, it says that 
when they came to a place, which is named Gethsemane, and in other um, accounts of this in Matthew, Mark, excuse me, in Matthew, Luke, and John, um, says that Jesus, certainly in the book of Matthew, that Jesus went into a garden in this area called Gethsemane. And he told his disciples to sit ye here while I shall pray. And he took with him three men, uh, one that the, the scripture describes that Jesus loved. I mean, John was a dear friend uh, to Christ. Uh, they were very close. So we took Peter, um, I would say the zealot, <laughs> um, and, and James, the, um, you know, uh, the brother of John, and John. And they went into the garden, um, and it says, they, it says <clears throat> that Jesus began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And one of the things that I, I, I want to highlight here is, again, what Jesus says later on. That the spirit is ready, but the body is weak. Jesus, here in the Garden of Gethsemane, he began to be, as in my study Bible says, greatly troubled and deeply distressed. Spirit is ready, but the body is weak. This is, these are the things that were going on with Jesus. The, it, again, Philippians, the second chapter said that, um, you know, that uh, he, Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He was, in, he was God in the spirit, but man in the flesh. And here we read that Jesus, while he was, you know, in the process of praying, um, became, again, uh, my study Bible says, greatly troubled and deeply distressed. And he said unto these three men, my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. Why would Jesus tell these three men, number one, I'm in deep distress, great anxiety. Well, I don't want to put words in the scripture's mouth. Greatly troubled and deeply distressed. He said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful until death. Stay here and watch. Why? What was, what was the lesson to be learned by these three men looking at this man who they obviously looked up to? He was the only begotten son of God. They believed that. He's telling them that I am in deep distress until death. I want you to stay here and watch. I want you to watch me and what I'm about to do. There is a great lesson that Jesus is trying to teach these three men. And it's not just about the spirit being ready and the body being weak, but what he's telling them is he's saying, stay here and watch. In verse number 35, it says, And he went forward a little, and he fell on the ground. 
And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from me. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And I'll get back to the lesson that Jesus was trying to teach these three men um, after I read verse number 37. And he says, He cometh and findeth them sleeping. And he says unto Peter, you know, the the gung-ho Peter. You know, the Peter that said, Christ, I will never be offended by you. I will never reject you, even though you say I will. No, I, I'm, I am in it to win it. I'm in it 100%, lock, stock, and barrel. I'm drinking the Kool-Aid, Christ. Before this situation, Peter is told by Christ, says, Verily I say unto thee that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. And that's in Mark, the 14th chapter, and verse number 30. So he took James, he took this Peter, and he took this James and John. Now, James and John were nowhere to be found when Christ was being persecuted in the temples and the synagogue by the Jews just this night. None of them are nowhere to be found. But he took these three men and he told them to tarry here and watch. He finds them sleeping and he says to Peter, Simon, sleepest thou really? What? Really, I just told you guys to sit here and watch. And then I come back and I find you guys sleeping. You've completely missed the lesson. Could thou not, couldst thou not thou watch one hour? He again says, watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit is true, the spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. Now I'm going to finish this out. It says in verse number 39, and it began, and again he went away and prayed and spake the exact same words. What were those words again? In verse number 36, Abba Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but will, but what thou wilt. Verse number 40, again, it says, And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, neither wist they what to answer him. And he cometh the third time, and saith unto them, Sleep on now. Take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. What is the lesson that Jesus 
was trying to teach his disciples. Well, in verse 36, there was a cup that Christ wanted God to take from him. What was that cup? Well, we all know what he had to do. You know, he had to go to the cross willingly and die a painful, debasing, embarrassing, dishonorable death and not do anything to stop it. Amen. Even though he could have called two legions of angels and have destroyed everybody just like that. God had told him that he had to go to the cross willingly and suffer that type of death. That was his cup. He was ready to do it spiritually. I have no doubt. But he came to this earth in the form of a man. Amen. And so he had this flesh to deal with. Right? His spirit was ready, but Christ's body was weak. Why else would he have been greatly distressed? Why else would he have been deeply troubled or greatly troubled and deeply distressed if it weren't for the fact that his body was weak? It had nothing to do with the spirit. Christ could have done that every day of the week, including Sunday. If he didn't have the spirit, if he didn't have the flesh that he had to contend with, just as we all have the flesh that we have to contend with. That's the beauty of heaven, brothers and sisters in Christ. There are people that said, well, heaven is just going to be boring. We're just going to be up in heaven worshiping God and not doing very much else. You know, we can't go out and fish. We can't go out and and do this. We can't eat. We'll just be worshiping God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And that's all we're going to do. And I'd say that's awesome. The only reason why you say it is born is because you have this flesh. It is not absolutely exciting and enticing to your body to think about being in a place in heaven and worshiping God forevermore. Because that does not appeal to your flesh. It doesn't appeal to my flesh, not necessarily. If the scripture has said there's going to be fiestas forever and ever and ever, you know how many people would be in this building right now? There'd be a lot more Christians if heaven was all about having a party for all eternity. We could go to people who love to party on this side of life and say, hey, listen, this party is going to last but for X amount of time. But guess what? You can come to an eternal party if you obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I tell you what, there's some people who say, hey, right on. You show me in the Bible where it says that. I'm there. But the Bible does not say that. The Bible describes a bland heaven. And I say that tongue in cheek. Because it isn't appealing to the body. Spiritually, we we are all desirous of it. But physically, right, it doesn't speak to my body. Right? And the same as that's the lesson that Jesus was trying to teach to his disciples, that even the Son of God... No names are available. Even the Son of God 
experienced this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane where he was ready spiritually, but his body was not willing to go forth. Such that he prayed to God that if it is thy will, let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, but as thou wilt. And that's another lesson. The reason why uh, Jesus... Okay, let's go back to Philippians, the second chapter, and then I'll, I'll hit the point. I'll let the scripture do it better, um, do it more so than me, because it can do a far better job. In Philippians, the second chapter, in verse number seven, again, it says, but, Christ, uh, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men, speaking of Christ. And being found in fashion as a man, guess what he did? He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So what's the lesson? Okay, look at verse number 13. Of Philippians, the second chapter, it says, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So, Jesus told his disciples to watch, to tarry here and watch, to listen, to observe what Christ, the only begotten Son, was doing. He was expressing His humanity in the greatest of terms to His Father. I am distressed. I don't want to put, I don't want to put fear in there because the Bible doesn't say fear, but it says that he was, His soul was exceedingly sorrowful until death. There was a lot going on with the man. In the book of Matthew, it says that as he was praying, tears. Another physical attribute of the humanity of Christ. The emotion of what he was about to do was falling from his face as it were blood. As, can, have you cried that much in your life? That I can just imagine tears flowing down like blood. You know, Christ was... Physically, in a lot of distress, he spiritually knew what he had to do. He knew he was created for that purpose. But yet this fleshly body that we all have, just as he had, was telling him, no, maybe you should think about this. So in this struggle that Paul talks about in Romans, uh, what is it, the 8th the chapter, I believe, 8th or ninth chapter, um, about you know, the struggle between the, the body and the spirit, you know, how, you know, we know to do good, but we don't do it because the body doesn't allow us or afford us the, uh, to do it. We find here that Christ is struggling with that same thing. And one can say, man can't be perfect. And because man can't be perfect, there is no God. But one thing we do know that man can be perfect Amen. because there was a man that was perfect. Amen. 
Man can be obedient until death because there was one man who was. Christ was not any more special than any one of us. I mean, he, he, he wasn't physically special. I mean, yes, he was the son of God, but he was tempted in all ways that, in all ways that we are tempted. Yet he did not sin, neither was there guile found in his mouth. If Christ can do it, we can do it. If man, if Christ can be perfect, we can be perfect. And because Christ can be perfect, we can be perfect. And if perfection is the, if perfect, I'm tongue tied here. If perfection is achievable, then there is a God. Okay, that, that maybe maybe I didn't here. I'll put it into these words: If God is perfect, then Christ is perfect. We can be perfect. If only those who are perfect are in the generation of the righteous, then Christ is in the generation of the righteous, and we can be in the generation of the righteous. If God is in the light, then Christ is in the light, and we can be in the light. If one of those statements is false, then they all have to be false. And that's why the fool in his foolish ways says that there is no God because I can't be perfect. And if I can't be perfect, then Christ couldn't have been perfect. If Christ couldn't have been perfect, then God is not perfect. And if you say that God is perfect, well, then I could easily say there is no God. See how that how that works. But because of the lesson that Jesus was trying to impart upon these three men about watching and praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did, what did, how did Jesus overcome that stressful moment? Well, let's go back and let's go back to uh, uh, the book of Psalms. What was that? Uh, Psalms, the 14th chapter. Mm-hmm. It says again in verse number one, the fool had said in his heart, there is no God. These who say that are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. Because they can't. Even if they do good, they don't do good. That makes sense. Right? Because they are corrupt. And their works, even if they seemingly look good, are abominable. They're unnatural to God. What are a number of other abominable things? You can think about, you know, go back and read the Old Testament scripture about in the book of Leviticus in particular, the book of Deuteronomy, secondarily to that, 
um, where God tells the Levitical priests those things that are abominable, unnatural in God's eyes. Homosexuality being one of them. I love this individual. I love them as a spouse. Love is good, is it not? So why would God say that or put limits on who I love? If I want to love another man, love is good. So why wouldn't God be okay with that? See where I'm going with this, right? See how those who are foolish, how they are corrupt and abominable. Okay, and that may not be lost. And you go back to the Romans, the first chapter, where it talks about homosexuality in particular. How it says that they gave up the knowledge of God in their minds because they said there is no God. At least not one that is aligned with, with me as a human being. God expects perfection, but I can't be perfect. And therefore, I won't acknowledge Him as the Almighty because I can't, it's impossible for me to be something that He says I can be. You see this circular logic the world comes up with? And so they, they say that love is love. Love is good. doesn't matter who I love and how I love. But it says again in Psalms, the 14th chapter and verse number one, they have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. In verse number two, it says the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. And that's the answer right there. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where did he go? Who did he talk to? To find the strength to overcome the weak flesh that we all have. If you remember, in Mark the 14th chapter, in that prayer, he started off by saying, God, I know all things are possible in you or with you. Well, how did he say it? I don't want to want to parse words here. I want to be accurate. What did he say? It says, All things are possible unto thee. All things are possible unto thee. Scripture tells us that all things are possible in what? Christ Jesus. It says, with God, nothing is possible or impossible. All things are possible. You can find that in 1 John. The answer to the question, how can we overcome this weak body that we all experience on a day-to-day -day basis is we have to seek God every single day. What does it say in, um, about Seeking God and His kingdom. We all know the verse. 
says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Whatever you are lacking will be provided to you, but you have to seek God. Just as Christ sought after God in this moment where His body was overwhelming to the extent that His his soul was exceedingly sorrowful unto death. You understand here that Jesus was on the precipice of a, of, a, of a catastrophe. Have you been on, on the precipice of a catastrophe? Jesus was praying to God in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was, I'm sure, struggling with calling those two legions of angels to relieve him. And you know what all he was waiting for? All he was waiting for to do just that was his father giving him the green light. And I guarantee you, if God had told him, do what you got to do, son. Christ would have called those two legions of angels and would have saved his life and carried him away to safe refuge. Because that's what Christ was on the razor's edge of doing. But in that moment, he did not sin. In that moment, he remained obedient. And how did he keep his obedience until death? And that's, you know, the key for us. That's the lesson he was trying to teach Peter, James, and John. Is in those moments when you are weak, when your body is weak, you have to seek God. You have to go to God. You go to God and you pray for strength, for guidance, and in in some cases for deliverance, whatever that looks like. But seek God. Now, there are a number of different verses. We're at at 50 minutes. Um, I I could look at a number of different, you know, I mean, we could, boy, there's just so many. Um, You can can look at uh, 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, um, you could look at, uh, um, what is it, uh, um, Romans 6, 6 chapter. You can read Romans 6 through the 6th chapter verses, uh, through uh, the 10th chapter. Um, there are just so many verses where we find men and women of the body of Christ who struggle with this spiritual earnestness to do something, but physically you just can't do it. I had it this morning. I spiritually wanted to wake up early and be ready and on time, but my body was just like, no, I I don't want to do it. I'm tired. I could sleep in. But it's in those moments that you got to go to God. You seek God in prayer and ask him for the strength to do it. Because all things are possible with God. Even the ability to overcome the the fallibility of your flesh. Can you be perfect? Yes, you can. It sounds like a... uh, Like a... (laughs) Like a, um, like a chant. And maybe it is a good chant for us as members of the body of Christ. Can you be perfect? 
Yes, we can. Can we be perfect? Yes, we can. I mean, those are, those are words that are powerful. But it's important to finish off that statement by saying, can he be perfect? Yes, we can, as long as we're seeking God every single day. There's no other way to get there. Unless God is someone that you are seeking after, that you are pursuing every single day. Because if you do not watch and pray, what did Mark, the 14th chapter, what did Jesus say to what did Jesus say to those three men? He says, watch and pray lest ye fall into temptation. And that's what happened. Because Peter didn't watch and pray, what did he wind up doing? He wind up denying Christ three times. And what did he say? After he'd done that, the words came rushing back. And that's a little crafty trick of Satan. Satan will make you deaf to the Word of God until the very moment that you've acted out that sin. How many of us have been there? I'm raising my hand. I've been there more times than I can care to count. Right? He'll make you deaf to the Word of God. You'll complete that sin. And God's voice, His words will come rushing back like a sledgehammer. Boom! And that's what happened to Peter. And it says that he went away weeping bitterly. And Satan was probably right behind him laughing the entire way. Because that's what he does. So the lesson is yours. Watch and pray. Seek God. You have to. Because the Spirit is ready, but the body is weak. So if you're here this morning and you need prayers of strength, um, maybe there have been moments this week where where you have been weak. Um, Again, seek God. Go to Him. Drop down on your knees just like Christ dropped down and fell on the ground. And And I just can't state this enough. How dare you think that you are so high and mighty that you won't fall down on both your knees and pray to God? I have seen grown men who won't do that. I'll never get down on my knees for nobody. How dare you? Who do you think you are? The only begotten Son of God fell down on the ground in front of three witnesses. It it puts a new context to prostrate Ben. He did that. Crying, weeping. The only begotten Son of God did that. He humbled himself before his Father and asked for help. So how dare you to think that you're above doing that? And, I, and I'm not saying that towards anybody. I'm, I'm more saying it towards me than anybody. Um, and so the lesson today is this. If you need prayers, don't be so proud that you don't come to God today right now and ask Him for help. Because your body is weak. 
You can't get there without God's help. Um, so the lesson is yours. Um, so we'll sing the song of invitation. The floor will be open to anyone who needs prayers. Thank you very much for your time.